Hi guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry, and I'll be your host. Today we're covering the events of Barbarossa from November 1st to November 14th. This episode will be a bit short, and also it's not going to be as action-packed. It'll be more about the kind of politics, the inner workings of the respective sides, and just kind of uh, uh, give you some context for the big battle of Moscow. Anyway, let's get into it. As November 1st began, both the Nazi Wehrmacht and the Soviet Red Army were preparing for one of the largest battles the world had ever seen, and hopefully will ever see. Operation Typhoon, which had kicked off a month ago, had seen German forces slice through the Soviet lines, encircle and destroy massive armies, and taking over 600,000 prisoners. But stiffening Soviet resistance and horrendous weather conditions had brought a battered army group center to a halt in the last days of October. Army group center was spread very thinly. Its front lines stretched over 800 kilometers equal to the distance between London and Frankfurt. On its southern edge was the 2nd Army, which threatened the capture of Kursk. North of that was Guderian's 2nd Panzer Army, which had reached the city of Tula. Holding the center was the 4th Army under von Klug, which stood no more than 70 or 80 kilometers from Moscow itself. Finally, on the northern edge was the 9th Army, which had seized the city of Kalin and were under massive counterattacks. Army Group Center, and in truth all German forces in the Soviet Union, were in rough shape, and that's putting it lightly. Over four months of fighting had exacted severe casualties and even more significant material losses. And this was particularly felt in the armored and motorized divisions that were so vital for the offensive. Reinforcements of both men and material were lacking, and the overburdened logistics system meant that much of this already inadequate supply did not reach the front. Even such essentials as ammunition and fuel were becoming in short supply, and yet this force was called on to break the Soviet troops that had stood against it, advanced to the east, and finished the war in the few weeks they had left to do so. That is to say, with each new offensive, they were expected to do more with less. In truth, though, the Red Army was no better off on a man-for-man basis, and in many ways was worse. It had been shattered over and over again since Barbarossa began, with entire armies having been destroyed and replaced. It also lacked the tactical skill of its German opponent. At the generalization, but generally at this point, German low and mid level officers were tactically superior to their Soviet equivalents. However, the Red Army did have ample manpower, a massive industrial base, high morale, at least in the sense of high morale, people willing to fight ferociously, often to the death. And it had a number of skilled commanders, usually in the higher ranks, with the intelligence and will to do what was needed. Even still, Soviet lines were rather thin, and they were often outnumbered by Germans at this point, especially in heavy equipment, like tanks. Nearly everyone in the German high command had expected the conquest of the USSR to take no more than three months, with many banking on a month before the Soviet state collapsed and the Red Army pretty much stopped resisting. Instead, they were now facing the very real prospect that the war would drag on into 1942, By November, only a few weeks remained until winter would fully set in, which would drag operations to a a complete halt, more or less. It would freeze operations, if you will. The winter would feed into the spring Rasputitsa, where melting snow and rain makes roads impassable marshes, swamps, and no major operations, particularly armored operations, could be conducted then either. Therefore, if the war went into 1942, the soonest Germany could conduct a killing blow was late May, or more likely June, just as it had been for Operation Barbarossa. This would mean giving the USSR at least six months to reorganize and rebuild its forces. To say nothing of the prospect of the U.S. entering the war, which was seeming more and more likely. 
So with integral, German forces advance as far as possible as soon as possible. By November 1st, Maximilian von Weich's 2nd Army had reached Kursk, and in a two days of heavy urban fighting, the city was taken, although it was not fully cleared until November 5th. Despite their success, von Weich's 2nd Army were given no chance to rest. Instead, the OKH set them a new goal, the city of Voronezh, 200 kilometers to the east. The OKH also intimated to Bach that it was only a matter of time before all of Army Group Center would be expected to restart the offensive. There were German attacks over parts of Army Group Center, there were other attacks, that is, but these proved unsuccessful. Many were conducted without infantry support, by panzers alone, the infantrymen either being in no state to assist the attack or unwilling to assist the attack, and to some extent probably both. These tank-heavy German attacks suffered from Soviet infantry and anti-tank guns, with one such assault by the 5th Panzer Division seeing 22 tanks damaged or destroyed. Meanwhile, some in the German High Command were coming to the grim realization that the war would not end in 1941. Walter von Brachisch, supreme commander of the German army, said as much to Hitler on November 7th. In other circles, though, delusion was still king. On November 7th, the same day as von Brachisch made a statement to Hitler, Halder distributed a map that showed his minimum and maximum lines of advance for the renewed offensive. His minimum line stretched 250 kilometers east of Moscow in the center, while his maximum line called for the capture of Murmansk in the north and advance 50 kilometers east of Stalingrad in the south, which would also entail capturing the entirety of the Caucasus. Overall, this maximum line would take German forces 450 to 500 kilometers east of their current positions. We should pause and consider the extent of delusion that this plan entails. Even the minimum version called for an advance of 300 kilometers, Operation Typhoon, for instance, had seen an advance of about 220 kilometers, and that was with more time, in arguably better conditions, and with more supplies. Many officers in Army Group Center would later cite this insane plan as the moment at which they realized how out of touch their higher-ups were. Von Bock himself wrote to Halder that his plans were unachievable, even though Bock himself still remained confident that Moscow could be taken. On the Soviet side, they were also preparing for a final battle of sorts, and were heavily concerned with securing the morale and determination of the Soviet people. To this end, Stalin gave a speech on November 6th, the anniversary of the October Revolution, a speech which was broadcast all over the Soviet Union. In his speech, Stalin did not ignore the losses his country had suffered, though he fabricated the numbers so that it seemed like German losses were much greater than they were, and Soviet losses were much lighter than they were. But Stalin did speak in a way that showed that he understood the enormity of the struggle, the Soviets' poor position at this current moment, and the need to resist. And this invigorated the morale of the Red Army as well as the Soviet people as a whole. Also in this vein, Stalin decided to hold a military parade in Moscow's Red Square in commemoration of the October Revolution. Such parades had been traditional in years past, but most had assumed, for good reason, that it would be skipped in 1941. The parade would have called for huge columns of troops and vehicles slowly marching through Moscow, which would clearly invite German air raids. But Stalin believed that such a parade would show Soviet strength and boost spirits. Most of his generals dismissed the idea, but Zhukov was tentatively supportive, arguing that Army Group Center was unlikely to launch a major attack in early November, so as long as extra air cover was provided for the parade, Zhukov said, it should be safe enough. So the parade was held on November 7th. 
nearly 30,000 soldiers taking part, most of whom marched out of the city and towards the front lines where they would very soon see combat. By all indications, this was a propaganda coup, and taken together with other demonstrations, significantly raised morale of the whole country. Moscow military censors analyzed over 2.5 million pieces of correspondence in the first half of November, and what they found is striking. Pessimism and theism was almost entirely non-existent. Now, this alone would not be striking, because a, a lack of uh, defeatism and pessimism could be prompted by the same um, strict censorship system that uh, that was reading the letters. However, the censorship office found a number of actively positive sentiments above and beyond what would be needed to ward off, uh, you know, suspicion. And I found that these sentiments rose substantially, that there was a real boost in, in, in morale and in confidence in the Soviet Union during this period. Returning to events in the field, the Red Army and its civilian volunteers were feverishly preparing Moscow's defenses. By early November, they had established an outer defensive ring as well as three internal lines of defense within the city. These rings were fitted with pillboxes, gun emplacements, tank traps, trenches, and all the accoutrements of modern defensive warfare and urban warfare. At the same time, Soviet forces were continuing ineffectual counterattacks. Some of these did manage to put real pressure on German forces, but were in general wasteful exercises. Soviet forces remained at a tactical disadvantage, compounded by the natural disadvantage an attacker is at compared to a defender. Therefore, Soviet troops took disproportionate casualties while they lacked the strength to capitalize on any potential breakthroughs they may have achieved. In one tragic incident, the newly arrived 44th Mongolian Cavalry Division charged directly into the teeth of the 106th Infantry Division. German forces were completely unhurt, while up to 2,000 cavalrymen were massacred by machine gun, rifle, submachine gun, and artillery fire. Most of these attacks, this was the worst of them, were induced by incompetent officers attempting to fulfill unrealistic orders set by higher-ups, orders which often originated from Stalin himself. These troops would have been far better used in defensive positions, but this was a lesson that Soviet commanders would have to learn again and again before it sank in. On November 13th, Halder hosted a conference with various representatives from the army groups and armies as well as various agencies, held in the Belarusian city of Orsha. The conference was held in order to sort out German defensive plans, but re revealed some interesting information besides that. In his statement, Halder seemed to admit, in his own way, that finishing off the USSR in 1941 was unlikely. He, of course, put it much more optimistically, merely saying that securing complete victory in the East was no longer 100% attainable. Still, Halder remained highly optimistic about the potential for operations before winter had fully set in. When it came to Germany's situation regarding manpower and logistics, the prognosis was quite grim, however. Walter Bule, chief of the OKH organization branch, reminded the audience that the expansion of the Wehrmacht for Barbarossa, which began in late 1940, was expected to last no more than a year. And if the war lasted into 1942, as it now seemed very likely to, there was no possibility of downsizing the military, which would deprive German factories of essential labor. Moreover, there was no prospect of creating significant reserves or replacing casualties. The only solution he could come up with was the dissolution of 15 divisions in the East to create a reserve for the remaining forces. On the production and logistical side, Wagner, uh, Eduard Wagner, uh, quartermaster general of the Wehrmacht, informed the assembled officers that no significant motor vehicle reinforcements could be expected, although tanks could be replenished. 
Just to stave off collapse in that department, it would be necessary to reduce the allotment of trucks to Panzer divisions, strip standard infantry of any trucks they might have, and partially demotorize the motorized logistics groups that had kept the motorized and tank forces limping along since just about the beginning of Barbarossa. Faced with this, Halder decided to revoke the ludicrous plans he had laid out for the week prior, but he still believed that they could wring another month or so of sustained operations from the troops, and at a minimum, Moscow should be encircled. This, he believed, operations should be conducted beginning on November 15th, and with Moscow encircled, he believed that the USSR would be neutralized as a threat, and it could be destroyed with minimum effort in 1942. Perhaps it speaks to the Wehrmacht's desperation that they had to rely on the bitter cold just so they could attack at all. You may recall that uh, in episodes prior, uh, it had been cold enough to freeze at night, but warm enough so that the ice melts during the day, for instance, such that the roads largely remain impassable marshes while also being freezing. And of course, it was not going to get any warmer for months and months, so the Germans' only hope for uh, more successful armed operations was for it to get cold enough so that the roads would stay frozen all the time. They would be slick and fragile, but technically usable. Logistically, the situation remained desperate, though. Army Group Center needed a minimum of 30 trainloads of supplies a day if it had any prospect of succeeding, but authorities could only promise 23 trainloads a day, and they routinely failed to meet that figure. A breakdown in command and desperation meant the authority over trains was debated and usurped. Authority over uh, supplies and, and trains. And commanders frequently poached supplies from one another, and that's to say nothing of partisan attacks and simple mechanical breakdowns. In the north, the Soviets counterattacked against the German advance towards Tikvin. Beginning on November 2nd, these attacks failed due to poor coordination and German air and artillery strikes. Aided by the frozen ground we spoke of, German attack picked up again on the 5th and were able to take Tikvin on the 8th. In doing so, they severed the last railing from Moscow to Lake Ladoga, critically endangering the prospect of resupplying Leningrad. And despite these successes, the German position was itself in grave jeopardy. Schmidt stretched his 39th Panther Corps as far as it could go, but its advance was narrowly and thinly held. In one case, three German divisions were holding a 100-kilometer front line, which put the whole German advance in severe danger of being cut off and destroyed. Moreover, if such an advance was to be successful, Finnish participation was absolutely essential. <clears throat> And Finland was largely unwilling to conduct offensives outside their own territory, and they also uh, lacked the modern forces to do so effectively. As Soviet forces were transferred from the Mormi Leningrad area to counter German forces near Tikvin, Schmidt's advance ground to a halt and pretty much stopped by the 8th. Although Schmidt and von Lieb, who commanded Army Group North, more or less understood the danger their forces were in, Hitler was adamant they continued. Von Lieb altered his plan, so it would be a less dramatic and ambitious advance to Lake Ladiga, and attempts at pursuing this line of attacks are early success, but they quickly bogged down in the face of stalwart Soviet resistance. Local Soviet counterattacks raged across the front, wearing down Soviet forces and stretching them to the breaking point. By November 14th, Von Lieb's offensive had been completely stopped for a second time. In the south, German forces in mainland Ukraine, so to speak, pushed forward and seized more industrial cities in the Donbass. By this point, the Axis has more or less captured all of Ukraine. Now, the army group south, its goal at this point, at least theoretically, was taking the Caucasus, which housed most of the Soviet's oil. 
This sort of advance would require German forces to capture the city of Rostov, or Rostov-on-Don. By November 5th, elements of von Kleist's first panzer army were just 22 kilometers from Moscow, but were too exhausted to take it. And there was also significant Soviet forces in the area, which made von Kleist unsure if in any case he could take it by direct assault. Rather, von Kleist opted to strike northeast of Rostov, advancing 60 kilometers in that direction, and then swing south to encircle the city. Efforts to do so began on the 5th and achieved a moderate breakthrough and an advance of 20 kilometers on the first day, but powerful Soviet defenses and counterattacks bloodied German panzer forces and forced a withdrawal. The German attack was renewed a few days later, being more successful this time, and managed to advance the requisite 60 kilometers by November 11th. But on that same day, horrendous supply problems forced von Kleist to suspend further offensives. In Crimea, German and Romanian forces made some initial efforts to take the Black Sea port of Sevastopol, but were unable to do so. Soviet defenses were considerable, although the actual number of troops was relatively few. Axis attacks managed to secure a meager advance, but it was quickly repelled. In the meantime, Soviet troops and equipment were being brought in by sea and brought their total number to about 50,000 troops by November 9th. The Soviet position in Sevastopol was improved by the fact that they gained a degree of air superiority, which in turn allowed them to keep powerful naval assets at port at Sevastopol and also made resupply easier. Axis troops, however, were able to force the Red Army off the eastern edge of the Crimean Peninsula and back into the North Caucasus region. There's relatively little to say specifically about the air combat in the first half of November. This is partially because both sides were conserving and building up their forces for the upcoming offensive, but also because both sides had so few planes left at this point. VVS Southern Front had no more than 40 operable fighters on November 1st, and many German units were in almost as bad shape. After a few weeks of buildup, VVS Southern Front was up to 200 planes in total, the highest that that count had been in nearly three months. German resources were also being replenished, but not, not, not very quickly. This was not due to a lack of output, but the fact that that output was being pulled in so many directions. German aircraft were needed in North Africa, over the Mediterranean to support North Africa, and fighters were needed all throughout Europe to counter British bombing. On the other hand, the Soviets could focus all of their production on the Eastern Front. In international news, on November 1st, FDR places the Coast Guard under the control of the Navy something typically reserved for wartime. On the 4th, Emperor Hirohito approves plans for the attack on Pearl Harbor if negotiations between the U.S. and Japan are unsuccessful. Finally, on the 13th, a German U-boat sinks the HMS Ark Royal, a British aircraft carrier. Ending this episode is kind of awkward. Um, On one hand, I'm tempted to end with a dramatic teaser, something along the lines of, will the Germans finally destroy the Soviets, or will the Soviets manage to hold out? But I feel like given kind of the analysis we do, it feels a bit naive to ask you that question. The Wehrmacht has already been significantly weakened, and the prospect that I could take Moscow seems pretty thin, and even if it could take Moscow, could it halt it? <clears throat> so I do apologize for not being able to close with the dramatic tagline. In any case, this is probably our second-to-last episode in the regular series. I'm undecided as to whether I should split up the end part of this, which uh, of Barbarossa, which goes from kind of all the rest of November and the first most of a week part of December. So I could split it up into two kind of very, two regular episodes or one very 
detailed long episode. So if that, uh, email me if you have an opinion on that. Also email me if you have uh, ideas for extra episodes I could do covering certain topics here. If you have ideas for more conflicts or events I could cover in this frame once Barbarossa is done, or if you have just any comments or suggestions or questions, email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Otherwise, guys, my name's Harry, and I'll see you next time.